podcast where we talk about things with one super special guest every week. Just sit back, relax, and hear us speak on This Is Happening, the podcast. Welcome back to This Is Happening and Georgie and Friends. Georgie and Friends. We're co-branding, and this is actually the first time we've uh, done this. It's a mashup of sorts. It's a yeah. mashup. <laughs> and it's the first time we've done this since we heard our own theme song. So oh, we're, yes. we're very jazzed about our theme song very over on. We, we love Nathan's theme song for This Is Happening, which you've just heard if you're listening to This Is Happening. <laughs> if you're listening to Georgie and Friends, you've heard Georgie and Friends theme song. Oh, Today, God, it's so complicated. So I'm welcoming my co-host, Doug Buden. And hello. We haven't recorded in a while no. because we've been on the road, but we've we're back you. in Los Angeles. By we, you mean you, because I haven't been on the road at all. I've been well, just sitting Georgie at home and waiting. I yeah, we left. We left for Doug. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a whole fort in La La Land. We for us. we really we want you with us always in the future. I mean, yes. obviously, Georgie Leahy is here. I am here. Yes, I am. Well. I'm, I'm suffering. I'm on the struggle bus today. <laughs> <laughs> so today we have the distinct privilege to interview John Morris, who shares a last name with me because he is my uncle. Yes. <laughs> and we are in his. Um, we are in his home in uh, California. Dear listeners, <laughs> if you could only see the magnificent surroundings that I, I can see, I am looking at the most. Gorgeous, sparkling blue ocean right now <laughs> as I turn my head and face <laughs> it uh, because I actually was facing the mountains. But uh, the mountains now I'm it is so beautiful. And um, to our friends, you should know I've been coming to this house uh, for low these maybe what, 20, 20 years. years. I feel yeah. I feel perhaps too comfortable in this house. <laughs> I still remember the first time I met you when the first thing out of your mouth was, I love your house. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's true. I think that's what I said when I arrived today. I, I mean, I, you know, I um, fled across the country, you know, having to leave New York in, in the dust. Um, and I came here to L.A. and I lived in this house as long as I possibly could. Why not? Until yes. one morning, uh, my aunt said, I found you a sublet in Silver Lake. Which was time to go. Time to go. But we are at an undisclosed Malibu location looking at the ocean. And it's incredible. I know. I've I've actually slept here quite a few times. (laughs) (laughs) As well. Everybody has. Without without you. Yeah. I mean, that was the experience. Sleeping, staring at the ocean. Years ago, I I produced a play that Doug was in called Common Knowledge. And uh, John and Luzanne came to see that. And their experience of it, they say, you know, from... The ticket takers, to the ushers, to people that were serving drinks, to the cast, to most of the audience. People came and said, oh, John, oh, John is like, we, we love your house. <laughs> yeah. You have such a nice house. And, and, you know, they would say, like, I think about 30 people said that to us. I like, well, <laughs> I, I do entertain there. It's was that, was, that, did, was I not clear about that? Yeah. <laughs> a house like this must be shared. It needs to be. Yeah. Enjoyed. Well, and I think John lives by that too. I mean, John, you know, constantly has people passing through and staying, and um, it is a lovely place. You always have had good, good house karma, good home karma. Yeah. Yes. You you had a beautiful place in New York, and 
a lovely place in London. You have an amazing home in Santa Fe, where Georgie has also been. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So That's are you funny. okay with this, John? Uh, no. been, we've bombarded you with all this. Are you okay that we're here now? Or do you I'm really fine. Want to leave? Yeah. yeah. John, I've, been, I've, I've been in both John's houses without even meeting John. No, we met today, yeah. Yeah, we're meeting now. So, yes. So we are here to talk to you about your career and life. I mean, that's what, you know, on, on This Is Happening Anyway, we like to kind of delve into people's creative journey. And I do know something about it because I did witness part of it. I mean, you, you were obviously, um, I wasn't around for what happened before I was born, but you're born in New York. Yes. Um, and went to, well, bounced around the country because your father was in the army. Well, I've lived in 17 states and five countries. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my God. Um, and, did uh, you work on the railroad? No. How did you, you move about so much? <laughs> Airplanes, thank God. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, they did have a bit of a peripatetic childhood because... Um, what does that word mean? Well, uh, we've... Uh, for, for the listeners... The, it's the, the uh, wandering. Stupid as me. Mm -hmm. okay. wandering yeah. about. Any fan of a chorus line is now singing the lyrics to one since it's peripatetic and chic. Indeed. Oh. Peripatetic and chic. Indeed. Actually, um, we, we're now repeating the exact words of Peter Page from a previous podcast. Is that true? So when I said peripatetic, I was thinking that. And now we've said why he knew that. I, I knew it anyway. But... Um, in any case, um, thank you, thank you guys. Thank you. I can put my head on my pillow tonight. Sorry for the I tangent. I something new. <laughs> uh, but you moved around all over the country as a, you know as a child, and then went to Carnegie Tech, Carnegie Mellon. Well, it's now Carnegie Mellon. It was Carnegie Tech, yeah. Right, and then we're in the theater. In the theater department, as as a, a performance major. Uh, yeah, an acting major. That was oh, the wow. idea. Um, I couldn't get into any of the really good colleges that I wanted <laughs> to get into. And uh, I decided my father had been in the theater, so I decided to follow him. And uh, because it meant less studying, I think. Of course. And were so, they okay uh, with it? Well, I did sixth grade in Ozark, Alabama, Fayetteville, North Carolina, and San Antonio, Texas. So a fa fairly peripatetic. Yes, thing. indeed. Yeah. Uh, but eventually, back in New York, in Gramercy Park at one yeah. point, and then into um, into Westchester. But um, with, with a father who's in the theater, were they... Well, he, he was the uh, production manager, stage manager, of the first summer stock company in the country, which was in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Oh, really? And he graduated from Harvard in 1929, and they wow. formed this group called the University Players, of which there were... Some rather interesting people. Uh, Henry Fonda. Oh, Jimmy, heard of him. Jimmy Stewart. Heard of him. Um, oh my God, I love Jimmy Margaret Stewart. Sullivan, a guy named Bertain Windus, who was the di director, and my dad, who was the stage manager. And Josh oh, Logan. Josh Logan. Um, yeah, it was, it was a really um, amazing group of people. Uh, Henry Fonda mentions it in his... Uh, Autobiography, Fonda, a life. Um, when he's, you know, he says, you know, Johnny Morris um, was the one who went and got a real job. I think he got a job in advertising. In Do New you York. think that's is that book on Amazon? Maybe. Uh, probably. Really? I'm because sure today's podcast is brought to you by <laughs> Amazon. Amazon. <laughs> Amazon from A to Z, just like the arrow. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we try to announce our sponsors you, throughout the podcast. It's a very good idea. He, he uh, yeah, so he, um, 
Fonda said something nice and just how like you know these struggling actors coming to New York to try to make it um, my grandfather John's father kind of helped keep them alive by you know frying up steaks and you know giving them a place to stay while before they got a job mm. yeah which is nice so uh, okay so and it was an excuse for me because uh, I wasn't getting into Harvard like <laughs> well, that, all the other senior you, male members you of my Harvard, family. Harvard, but you didn't go to Harvard. Did right. you apply and not get in? I don't remember. You don't remember. Mm. <laughs> How convenient. What a vague answer. Actually, I don't remember. My, my, my grandfather, your father was one of, I don't know, nine children? Seven. Seven children. Wow. All of which, to the extent that they lived that long, um, went to Harvard. And I think their their relatives back to the early eighteen. Yeah, I'm the first senior member of my family, not to go to Harvard. Wow, you must really have been a terrible student. John. I didn't bother. <laughs> they probably were, wanted you to go, and they were like, "Oh God, this is the first one we can't get in." No, there was uh, no big deal. My father didn't go either, <gasps> and neither did I. But um, oh, the chain was but the, but the chain was broken with John. <laughs> yeah, it was my fault. John, John <laughs> broke oh, it. Oh, my fault. <laughs> let gates open after John. They're like, we don't have to let any more in. Perfect. Good. Yes. <laughs> the legacy thing can stop. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to Carnegie Tech where I thought I was going to play football, but I was told on the first day there by the new head of the school, uh, Ted Hoffman, uh, that I couldn't. So that ended my football career, which is <laughs> the only thing that really in interested me at that point. Uh-huh. And so you started uh, acting. It was doing the acting, doing acting. But did you also like do like lighting design or things? Well, I ended up when I left there. Uh, I actually Ted sort of basically kicked me out of school at the end of my first year, and gave me the phone number of a guy who was directing an off-Broadway play in New York at the uh, Sheridan Square Playhouse. And so I went to work on the show called Leave It to Jane uh, and ended up singing and dancing in the chorus, be, <laughs> being about 14 times. I can neither sing nor dance. <laughs> being dragged around the stage by Lady Kazan, who was also in the chorus. Oh, my God. And, but and I was you mainly the lighting guy. Hmm? You, as a straight guy in the chorus... You must have been with all the ladies, yeah? It was, it, it was not bad. <laughs> I bet because, let's face it, most of the guys in the chorus are into the other guys yeah. in the yeah. chorus. Yeah. When I went to dance college, um, there was I thought they were all straight because I have no gay dom, so I fancied them all. But there was only one straight guy, and he didn't get to hook up with me because he hooked up with everyone. So I was like, no, sorry, not me. I'll say the famous virgin. <laughs> You've made up for that, baby. I have. So, yeah, but so you kind of migrated from acting into production. production. I did, yeah, I was doing the lighting at the show. Uh, and then I got uh, involved with a couple of the uh, outside of New York, Mineola Playhouse and the Paper Mill Playhouse in Jersey. Hmm. And became the lighting designer for them. And then did you do some work with Martha Graham? Is that right? No, I had a very good or close her, friend her in company? New York. No, there was a guy who was a very close friend of mine, uh, Gardner Compton, who's gone now. Oh. Who was a dancer in Martha's company. But I got to know the company pretty well. Yeah. And you didn't do any lighting for them? No. Oh, I misremembered that. No. Um, we can strike that from the... From well, the no, we're, we're correcting my misremembering. Oh, no. yes. I did, however, light a show in the West End in a theater that's still there in London. Which, which theater? It was called uh, 
the world of Kurt Violin song, Martha Schlemmer and Will Holt. Oh. Uh, easily forgotten. Yeah. Uh, and yet you remember it. I yeah. remember it, right. Well, it's the only show I ever lit there. Mm. It was amazing because the theater was it's still there, the What's Variety the Theater. The Variety. Yeah, small one. And uh, they had floats, which nobody knows about anymore, but in, where footlights would be now. Oh. They, there used to be in the old... Elizabethan area into the Victorian era, uh, there used to be a, a trough of water, like a gutter, and blocks of wood with candles on them that floated oh, in it. Wow. And they were, they were what uh, became footlights. Because that uh, would light, the, the reflection off the water uh, would light. The, yeah. Probably a very forgiving light. Yes, well. very handy. Yeah, yeah, flattering. Yes. <laughs> Which I you want that, on stage. I, need I that want to now. Do. I want to walk around with that at all times. <laughs> Me too. I need it very much so today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we're not filming. <laughs> yes, we're not filming. We're just recording. Um, so, uh, you then, from doing um, you know, production in the theater, Ended up was was your first job in the music business with Bill Graham or rewarding? Well, I had I had uh, gotten involved with a show called The Establishment. Oh right, in which London. Was the, no, well, in they were from London, but it was in New York, and I became political satire. Stage, yeah, until my agent said to me one day, "Political satire is dead." We toured it in colleges for a few years, mm. and he said, "It's dead," and I said, "Why?" And he said, well, look at around the world. Harold Wilson in England, Charles de Gaulle in France, and Lyndon Johnson in the United States. It's satirical life. Mm. So he took me to Toronto and introduced me to Bill Graham. And we put on a production in the O'Keeffe Center up there, which is sort of like the Carnegie Hall of Toronto, of the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson Airplane. Oh, wow. wow. That was your first concert. That oh, was my the first God. thing. My first concert was actually a promotional uh, f freebie that we did as as uh, in front of the Toronto City Hall, which drew about fifty five thousand people. Well, you're very famous for free concerts, John. I'm afraid that's <laughs> 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 no. I've done over four hundred concerts in my life, and only three or four of them have been free. Okay, well, but the the well known one. Well, certainly this first one. Uh, even I've heard of those bands. Yeah. Oh yeah, of course. But I, I'm, I was alluding to Woodstock, which became a. It wasn't meant to be a free concert, but became a free concert. No, I, it's funny. You think about it fifty years later, and I got to make the announcement that cost John Roberts and Joel Rosenman about two million dollars <laughs> to tell everybody the obvious. It was basically stating the obvious, because there was an audience uh, already sitting in the audience area, and the ticket gates were not up, and the fences were not up. And so after about halfway the morning of the first day, I talked to John and Joel in the office in White Lake. And the guys who paid for Woodstock never got to see the concerts. They were in the office in White Lake, five miles away the entire time. Oh, my God. And the, so you're saying the original intention, though, would have been to charge... Oh, absolutely. I mean, tickets. they had been selling tickets all, you know, in New York and... and um, all across the country. A lot of people did have tickets. What but... happened was people just... We didn't realize how many people were going to show up. And people should start showing up. We thought 50,000, 75,000. We, if we could just pause one moment, we should probably, at this moment, uh, 
tell our listeners, especially our Filipino friends, hello, <laughs> that John is... Are you advertising the Filipinos also? Well, we are because we have some of our favorite listeners. Ah, uh, it's Indonesia. Salamat. Oh, Indonesia. I take it all back, Bahasa. Philippines. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm quite close to the Indonesians. Yeah. That's Fili- a different... Philippines, I, I take... I have no love for you in the Philippines. No love at all. We, we have a, a tiny, a tiny uh, following in the but Philippines. But our friends in Jakarta, we say <laughs> Hello. Uh, no, but what I think we what we were, now we're talking about Woodstock, we should uh, tell our listeners that John is instrumental. Yes. in Woodstock. Well, we were we were getting there. I, we were, yeah. we were at Carnegie jump. Tech, and I now jumped. we did a big old jump. I jump. We can jump ten back. years. Yeah, we jump back jump. because your your work with Bill Graham was that in like 66, 67? 67. Okay, we did the thing in Toronto, Toronto in '67 with the Jefferson in Airplane. '68, I opened the Fillmore East with Bill in New York. In '68, <coughs> so Bill Graham was a very famous um, rock impresario. Uh, you know, he was a manager. He ran venues. He was a concert promoter, um, and he was a big deal in the music business at the time. He had the Fillmore Theater in San Francisco. Yeah. Which really launched a lot of people. I mean, ultimately Santana, but um, the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson Airplane and just um, Janis Joplin. Janis Joplin. The whole scene in San Francisco was kind of. Uh, he was one of the big players in that scene. So he wanted to, um, you know, carry the brand of the Fillmore over to New York. So he, um, you know, was working with John. John is from New York and know, knew the town. And uh, he enlisted you to go find a theater and open what became the Fillmore East, which yeah. was a big rock venue. Amazing. 3,600-seat Lowe's movie theater that we turned into a concert hall. Lowe's? Yeah. They still have movie theaters. And they today's still. podcast is brought to you by <laughs> Lowe's. <laughs> Thank you for coming to Lowe's. Sit back and relax. Enjoy the show. We have the most serendipitous sponsors. We just yeah. have mentioned them and then they just kind of appear into sponsors. This is my the long-term vodka. plan, John. <laughs> John, for this podcast, my plan is we're just going to keep saying them and then we're going to... Well, we, I, I am implementing the plan to make those things real. Yeah. Yes. And so that when we will do... Because Doug is very interested in doing like the spots that we yeah. cut to. It's like, oh, thanks for that, Doug. Thanks for selling those things. Yeah. <laughs> so back, but back to what is what is now Lowe's. Yeah. Yeah. So he turned it into Actually, the Lowe's remains a partner. The Phil Moore East was uh, the original partnership was Albert Grossman, who was the manager of Bob Dylan mm. and uh, later Janis Joplin, uh, Peter Paul and Mary. Uh, Ian and Sylvia, a lot of other people, major manager, and Bert Block, who was his partner. And they were all in New York? They were in New York. And Ron Delsner, who in those days was the major producer of concerts in New York. Bill Graham, who was the major producer of concerts in San Francisco. And Lowe's Theater, from whom we got the building. So, uh, and we had a 45th anniversary of Woodstock a few years ago. And Mike Rogers, who was the guy who was from Lowe's, came and we hadn't seen each other in years and years and years. Mm. So, That's amazing. So who, yeah. who were the, you know, who were the acts that you, because, you know, I know you booked uh, Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and uh, you had The Doors come through the Fillmore East. Later, yeah. Um, but it was, you were booking, like, this is 68, you know, so all the big bands at the time 
Um, who, well, the what, whole thing in the country at that time was 3,000-seat theaters. Hmm. I mean, it started with Bill with uh, the Fillmore West. Right. But there began to be a circuit. I mean, I can remember we played uh, Fleetwood Mac the first time they came around, $750, oh. uh, which is about what it costs you to buy a ticket these days. <laughs> in, the in the parking lot. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but we were building the acts through 3,000-seat halls. Bill never liked, I mean, he always hated Woodstock, and he hated the size of big outdoor concerts. He hated stadium concerts. Because he, he thought that you could lost the experience? Was yeah, he said he always felt that you couldn't hear the music that well. Uh, and I mean, he's right. That, that it's the best way to see an incredible artist. Oh, it's, it is. And it's when you can actually it's hear them. Something yeah. intimate. It's an intimate space. Right, but the, then the money got to be, uh, when Fleetwood wanted more than $750, mm. I mean, it went to twelve fifty, and then it went to 2500 and then it suddenly skyrocketed, but you had all these bands. And you need to sell more tickets. Yeah. 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 Um, so, what are your what are some of your memories of of the Fillmore and some of the artists that passed through there? And because I, I I just you know well, I remember Jimmy particularly. Yeah. Because uh, Jimmy was had been living in England, and yeah. uh, he, he was, was play, playing at Scotch. Yeah. I used to play there. I used to play the the first place that he played in London was a place called Scotch. Ronnie Scotts. Which is um, no, not Ronnie Scotts. Oh. It's a place called Scotch, and it's um it's in the White Cube, right by the Right Cube Gallery. And it's really famous because Jimmy played his first gig there. Stones have played there. That was where John met Yoko and everything. Mm. And like a yeah. few a few years ago, they reopened it, and I got to I got to be, sing there all the time. And was like, that with the energy? No, this was my just oh yourself by oh, myself yeah, with with like a it's, it's like a super group. All these other amazing musicians got together. There was even this woman that played like rock and roll flutes and stuff. It was great. Oh, it was amazing. Um, but the energy of that plate, you could feel, you could feel Jimmy, you could feel Tina yeah. yeah. Turner performed there and stuff like, and that, so that was where Those I were really good days in the yeah. late 60s, early 70s, because that. you got to hear and see somebody very up close. Yeah. Uh, the thing I was saying about Jimmy was that the first time he played at the Fillmore East, uh, having lived in England, he was very fashionably King's Road dressed, mm. yeah. and he went into his famous knee... Uh, drop with a guitar and you could hear this rip as the seam went up the back of his pants and broke open and it was like there's Jimmy with his black tail hanging out <laughs> upstage and I'm in the wings and I looked at him and he looked at me and I just sort of stuck my finger up and said wait a minute you know time out uh, he kept playing and I went and got a towel and then I showed him the towel and he said he was still playing and he stood up, and I went wrapped a towel around his mouth. And that's, that's and, and you know, amazing. also because of, of technology and how technology has changed, not just like amplification, but from the musician side, the way music now is so produced and sweetened, and and you know they they make so many little tweaks and the auto tune. You know, back in the '60s and the '70s, you had to actually be a good musician. Oh yeah, right? I mean, you could tell. The requirements are, are have changed. Bill Hanley, who was the guy who did the sound system for the Fillmore East, and then later on did Woodstock and did concert sound all over the country. I mean, it became a really big deal. Uh, I just read the other day that, I've forgotten his name, but the guy who was Peter Townsend's guitar guy, 
who repaired all Pete Townsend's guitars when he'd smash them up, <laughs> just died. Uh, but I, I had Pete, uh, the weekend that Martin Luther King got killed, we decided to actually continue and play. And Pete and I had a long conversation about him wanting to have it be peaceful and nice and respectful. And about halfway through his performance, he decided to charge his amplifiers. And I remember being behind Peter's amplifiers with my hands on them, holding them up so they didn't go back over with him smashing the guitar. Uh, yeah, we had quite a few things. We did Janice's first concert in New York. Oh my God. Uh, it was on a bill. Actually, it wasn't in the Fillmore. It was in the uh, uh, theater across the street that we started in first. And, uh, and could you rely on her, like, to show up and and perform? Oh, of course not. No. Yeah, no. <laughs> to show up and perform, yes. But could uh, the the first thing that we did in this thing called the, it was the Yiddish Anderson Theater. Okay. And it was on Second Second Avenue and Fourth Street. Fillmore was a couple of blocks up the street. But B.B. King was the opening act. Mm. And he had never played downtown for a white audience before. And he was such a hit, he did about 10 or 11 encores. And Janice was thoroughly terrified. I think I bought, I cleared out the liquor store next door of Southern Comfort. <laughs> she needed all a of A bottle it. at a time. Go get another bottle. Go get another bottle. <laughs> And you know why? Said, because Southern Comfort goes down with ease, John, because today's podcast <laughs> is brought to you by Southern Comfort. Uh, <laughs> the comfort, the comfort from the South. Yes. Yes. Was, that, was that what she... It helped That's Southern what she drank, comfort? yeah. Wow. Uh, but she was terrified, and she said, uh, I can't go on after him, they'll boo me. And I said, no, no, you'll be fine. And I talked her into... We had a, a fire curtain, a big solid curtain that went up and down. And so we had the curtain down and I said, you go upstage and open with ball and chain. You know, where she goes, wah, 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 wah. Yeah. And do that from upstage and go just charge the audience and you'll be fine. And she did. We took the curtain up and she charged at him and she won him in 30 seconds and gave her one of the best performances I've ever seen. Wow. Mm. Her performance at Woodstock was lousy because she was too drunk. Is that right? Oh, yeah. It gives me goosebumps. Goosebumps. Yeah, I mean, you know. Goosebumps. It, it, is, it is amazing because these, these legends, um, you know, Jimi Hendrix and, and Janis Joplin, who died young, Sorry. you know, at 27. 27 Club, yeah. Long, you know, before I was born. I mean, I, I, I'm such a fan of Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin. I think they're just... Like, so incredible, you know, and the fact that you were, like, a part of their, you know, careers, I, I think is fascinating. Well, it was an accident. The first time I met Jimmy was right after Monterey. I happened to be in San Francisco, and he got out of a van. That's in the days when they all jumped into a van with their instrument. And he got out and handed me a Polaroid camera. He said, how do you make this work? <laughs> I said, I don't know. So we sat down on the steps of the film race and we figured it out. Oh, my God. It <laughs> and it was an early Polaroid. Yeah. So. I love Morris and I got you. Sponsored by Polaroids. Polaroid used to sponsor This Is Happening and George and Friends, but I think they've gone out of business. Come back, Polaroid. <laughs> we miss you. Right. They, 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 I still have my Polaroid. 
I think they're still. They still might have gone. They're back. They're oh, back. They, yeah, oh, they, they are. Right. Back. Welcome back, and Georgie. thank you so much for <laughs> thanks for re-upping your sponsorship. Yeah. Now that you're know, out of you, uh, bankruptcy. Thank you for all the free Polaroid <laughs> film. I will use them for lots of naked photos. Thank you. And you, you mentioned, you know, another one in that sad club of people that died at 27. Um, Jim Morrison. Yeah. Um, he. What were you saying about him at the film? Well, board? he was. He was. He became a friend through Bill. Bill Siddons, who was his manager, and he used to come hang out in the office every once in a while when he was in New York. And one time he came over and he'd played in Long Island for somebody else, and we were all pissed off at him. <laughs> he should have been playing for us. Yeah. And he said something. He was watching Chipmunk, who was the lighting designer, who had a bridge hanging out over the audience about 60 feet in the air. And Chip was hanging himself up there. And Jim said, you know, that's a, that's a, uh, he's going up and down on a bosun's chair. And he said, I know about bosun's chairs because my father was uh, in the Navy. Mm. And he said, can I try your bosun's chair? And a little light bulb went off in my head. And we said, sure. So we put him in the bosun's chair. The shows were over. Put him in the bosun's chair and hauled him up to the 60, the 60 feet up in the air and tied him off to one of the seats. And then we went next door to Ratner's and had breakfast. And we could hear him screaming. And you left there. Jim Morrison <laughs> up in a rafter? Yeah. Well, he God. made the mistake of not playing for it. <laughs> oh, so. my God. Did he play for, like, Delsner in Long Island or something? Sorry? Did he play for Delsner No, he Long played Island? for somebody else. Someone yeah, else. Philly Basile, I think. Okay. <laughs> uh, but we finally went and let him down. Let him come to Ratner's, and have, which was right next door. Uh-huh. It was a kosher restaurant that had been there forever. It sounds familiar, Ratner's. Oh, yeah, it's still it's there. It's still there. Yeah. It's still there. Um, Probably with the same damn waiters, you know. <laughs> the waiters were amazing in Ratner's because in the summertime, you had all these wonderful old guys who were the waiters and took really good care of you, we got to know. And then in the winter, they would disappear because they all went to Miami to work in the restaurants in Miami. Oh, to work in Miami. Oh, that yeah. makes sense. Oh, yeah. They were smart. Oh, yeah. And well-fed. Yes. So it was, um, you know, so it's that job at the Fillmore East that, that kind of um, eventually led to you meeting the guys that were putting together Woodstock. I took the doors in the airplane on their first European tour, and Bill didn't like that very much, even though he told me I should go. And when I came back, I found that somebody had weaseled into my position of being the managing director of the Fillmore East. Mm. So I was sort of sitting doing nothing, and then one day this friend of mine, Bert Cohen, who ended up doing the advertising for Woodstock, mm. and about whom nobody ever talks. I mean, Bert died quite a few years ago, but he advertised Woodstock in all the underground newspapers. Not in the, not, there was no real television advertising right. in those days, and not in the New York Times or the San Francisco Chronicle. But the advertising for Woodstock, the thing that got the word out, was all this underground newspaper stuff. He and Chip and uh, another brought this guy, Michael Lang, to my house, and they started talking about, we're going to do this big festival in, uh, out in the country, you know, get all the major acts in the world, and uh, blah, 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 blah. We'd like you to come do it, because I knew all the agents. I knew most of the acts. You'd been booking them. I'd been booking them at, at the film arm. And uh, they offered me 15 grand, I remember. And I thought, 15 grand is insane. This idea is wacko. It's never going to happen. But sure, why not? 
So that's how I became head of production at Woodstock. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, and th- and that was like er- er- earlier in the year in in 1969. 69 in spring um, of 69. Spring of 69, and then so I I actually um, you know I I paid some attention to Woodstock before, but you know I now. Um, have finished a uh, movie called Creating Woodstock, which features John and all of the people uh, that put Woodstock together. It's directed by Mick Richards, who spent the last 27 years or so working on this film and meeting everyone that had to do with putting Woodstock together and telling the story of how, of how it happened. It's a really good film. Creating Woodstock, who will be a sponsor of this uh, well, the, podcast, because that's, that's actually true. Eric and <laughs> I, know, I can do John the commercial has for picked that. up exactly how this works. Yes. Yes. So you listen to his tra- his trajectory from his career. He always he picks up to what is important, and of course, the most important thing today is our sponsors. Thank you, Creating Woodstock. Yeah. So it it really does though take you know tell comprehensively how how that came together and through working on it I certainly you know I've watched the film many times and working with Mick um, and now getting it out into the world it's uh, you know going to be available we'll have links in our um, uh, you know it's going to it's coming out at small theatrical release and it's playing in various venues it's playing at the the site of Woodstock, which is Max Yasper's farm, is now a museum. Yep, the Bethel Woods Museum. The Bethel Woods uh, Center for the Arts. And um, John is going to go there for the first time as a I museum. have never been back uh, since after Woodstock. Yeah. Uh, and haven't even seen the museum. So It's really something. We're I mean, going to show your film. And, I'm going to uh, be there too. Um, yes. I'll be here, looking at the ocean, <laughs> counting my sponsorship dollars. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah, but so it's going to be playing there. I actually, I had the pleasure of going and visiting the, the museum. It's really something. And there's, you know, there's lots of pictures of you and uh, little, uh, you know, exhibits of things that you did and stuff about the Fillmore. I mean, one of the things, maybe I sent you a picture of it, I don't remember, but there, the Fillmore had like a... Uh, either a football team or a soccer team right, or we, something. We played touch football against the Ninth Precinct in New York Police Department. And there are a, there's a, there's a jersey from that. Oh or, really? I think it's your jersey actually. No, my jersey. I went to a collector, but okay. I'm thinking about giving him. Uh, I wore a bush jacket throughout the film. Well, throughout the festival. Yeah. Which was a real live Abercrombie and Fitch when it was a safari outfitter, uh, before it changed to be a hip. Brand, but uh, I have it, and I'm going to give it to him. Oh, yeah, it fifty yeah. years later. Wow. No, it's been dry cleaned. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pristine. It's 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 upstairs, I think. Um, but um, Woodstock, for people that don't know, was captured very uh, memorably and and famously in a film called Woodstock, which won the uh, Oscar for best documentary film in 1970, directed by uh, Michael Wadley. Uh, Martin Scorsese was one of the camera operators. Um, was direct, you know, edited by Thelma Schoonmaker, um, and that's how a lot of people know about Woodstock. It's from that film, which is very long. It's like three hours. Long. Well, it was originally longer than that. Yeah, they cut it back to three. So how and long it, was the was well, the it was three festival? Days. It was three thirty-six days. hours. Well, actually, Rhino Records and Warner Brothers 
Rhino Records and Warner Brothers. Rhino, and Rhino Warner. Records. Welcome aboard. To Thanks Thanks to about to I've been writing back. checks to Rhino, Rhino Records. They can write some right back. Yes. Welcome, yes. Rhino. We welcome you. <laughs> Along with Abercrombie and Fitch, who he just lets slide <laughs> off like <laughs> to me. Yeah. <laughs> See Abercrombie and Fitch? We're keeping the vintage alive with your help. Yes, we want, we want, I want, I want naked... Abercrombie and Fitch models to be delivered to my house. Not naked. We want them wearing Abercrombie oh, and yes. Fitch. Yes. Well, maybe, a very small. Maybe, small. The, maybe the perfume. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, yes. That's just the scent. Yes, exactly. So the uh, but yeah, Woodstock was three days, but you were saying Rhino and uh, Rhino and Warner Brothers Warner. is releasing a series of albums and a book and uh, a whole bunch of stuff on the original Woodstock, a copy of the original wow. Woodstock film, uh, which is going to be priced at a thousand dollars, and they are also, but they've got it going down the scale, so. You can buy just the discs, 32 hours of music. Oh, yeah, they have wow. all of it, and they have all the stage announcements. That's they so asked you to come in and do a little interview for it. They right? asked me to interview for that. Uh, uh, yeah, and um, your cat is making her. That's my cat. Oh, <laughs> you can't, you can't shut up the cat. No, I love the cat. I'm gonna go. Um, but uh, but no, I'm one of the, one of the little ancillary products. I mean, they're clever over there at Rhino. Thanks again for the sponsorship. But one of the ancillary products they put together is this, you know. Uh, conversation uh, it's the stage announcements of people talking on stage about this flat blue acid um, which is which was you know that a doctor had warned Chip Monk I think you know who's doing a lot of stage announcements that that this was dangerous and so they were making announcements from the stage and um, you know, Grace Slick of Jefferson Airplane chimes in and was saying good things about this acid. No, she was saying it about something else. I mean, it was interesting because there were some warnings about some acid being passed around that was not very good. Yeah. And Andy Zack, who produced this whole Rhino Warner Brothers uh, extravaganza uh, and listened for hours and hours and hours, when he was interviewing me the other day, said... Uh, yeah, and you did the announcement about the flat blue S, and I said, I never did it. I wouldn't do that. I never would talk about drugs from the state. And he said, you want to hear it? <laughs> and he played it for me, and not only that, he'd had a T-shirt made out of it. Oh, my God. He gave, uh, he gave me several copies of the T-shirt, and they made it into its own 45 record. Yeah. John, it's a single. making these announcements? <laughs> yeah. That's I only did one, and I had totally forgotten. But how much acid did you Well, do? what happened was... No, he didn't do any acid. I've never done any acid. Uh, I got spiked by the Grateful Dead in <laughs> Central Park. Tell us about that. In about 73 or 74. Well, if you're going to... I had always felt that since I was in generally the one in control, that I couldn't yeah. imbibe. Right. It wasn't fair to play. And uh, I didn't like grass that much anyway. But uh, we did a free concert in Central Park in the band shell in New York with the Dead. And it was hot as hell. And I went and grabbed a Coke. And of course, if you worked with the Grateful Dead, which I did, I did 19 Grateful Dead concerts before I stopped doing concerts. Mm. You never drank from an open container. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just, that was it. They'd lace you. And I found a Coke can with a top on it, no marks on it, anything else, and grabbed it, popped the top, and just chugged it down. And I'm bring the can down and I'm looking at Jerry Garcia and Stanley Owsley, who invented acid or basically propagated it, 
uh, Phil Lesh and Billy Kreutzmann of the Dead. And they were all going, gotcha. <gasps> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Owsley had injected the Coke can oh, with no. the acid. So you couldn't see anything. That's you could, hysterical. You, well, you couldn't. If it were today in our litigious society, the, you would have sued them, right? Right. No, I would never well, sue them. Well, he was producing their concerts. So. Uh, but the and thing that was hilarious was that it did get me, and I found myself a while later standing between Jerry and about 30,000 people playing either a cowbell or a tambourine. I don't remember <laughs> what it was. <laughs> <Maybe both. Yeah. laughs> With Jerry saying, John, you got no goddamn rhythm. <laughs> In my back while he's playing. So I got quite a buzz out of it. That is an incredible <laughs> story. I love that. Yeah, that is pretty great. Um, but that's the only only other time I, and only time I did Kids, that. especially our friends in Indonesia, don't try that at home. Yes, <laughs> yes. There no. are no. laws in place now that it's illegal. Yeah, don't don't, don't um yeah, don't inject don't don't you don't that's, her. that's actually happened to you. Someone spiked your, your drink. Not acid, but it was with like oh, I've been liquid roofied, marijuana. I've been roofied so many times that I'm like, you're gonna have to give me a few more for it to work <laughs> I was I accidentally smoked pot that was laced with uh, PCP with angel. Oh my god! Yeah. You did? yeah, when I was in college, that's why I gave up smoking the marijuana cigarettes. I had a terrible, terrible experience freshman year of college, mm. and um, we called my parents or this woman who, whose name was I don't even know her real name. We called her Fish. She called my parents <laughs> and she said, "Hi, is this Doug's parents? My name is Fish. I just want to let you know we're taking Doug to the hospital. Bye." And she huh. hung up the phone. And this oh. was, you know, after midnight. And in New Thanks York for City, handling that fish. In, uh, yeah, that was <laughs> well done. Well done. Yeah. In New York City, my parents' garage, where they had their car, was closed at midnight. So they couldn't get the get, car. They couldn't get the car. And thank God they, they couldn't because I was rushed to the emergency room. They gave me IV Valium. And oh everything was God. fine. Everything was totally fine. They didn't need once to they, know. Once they told problem. me what, what was happening, because they did blood work or whatever, and they told me, they were like, you're, you know, you're tripping or whatever, you're going to have muscle spasms, and I was like, woo, woo, woo. I mean, it oh happened as they said it, and then I was fine. Wow. Yeah. That's scary. But it turned me off of pot uh, for quite some time. Well, I just, I was given, <laughs> I was given a, a, a gummy by Kristen <laughs> while we were in Nantucket, and, um, and at first I thought it was fine. I'm so, um, this I called, was consensual. I called this, you yes, were, You yes. were like, you know what, I'm celebrating my visa renewal. Let's yes. just, I'm throwing caution to the wind. So, and I, like, <laughs> I remember the, the, we were at the one gay bar in, in, in Nantucket, kind which I of. think was filled with straight people. <laughs> they were giving they were me lots of attention. To be Did you know there was a gay bar? No, in it really is. Oh, yeah. It, I would it, think there would be. No, it's new. It's new, and they're it's, trying to to right. make it into a gay bar, but the gay people don't go there. So. But then we ended up going, having to go to the festival party. And we're in the car, and I'm like, I can't go. I can't get out. I can't. I can't. I'm not doing this. Well, so no, she said, come back for me in ten minutes. Yeah. So we all went, and I did come back in ten minutes, and she and was no longer in the car. I so, yeah, because then I spaced out so much in those ten minutes that I was like, why am I by myself in this car? What is going on? Where did everyone go? Why did they leave me? Open the door. I think I left the door wide open. No, you went, closed the door. I closed the door. <laughs> and then, um, and then I went for a walk and spaced out even more. But I was like, how on earth did I end up in the south of France? Why am I in Montpellier? Yeah. <laughs> and I sat on this bench by myself, going, help, 
Help! Oh, poor Why you! Why am I in Montpellier? So I, this is how I found her. I mean, I, I saw she wasn't in the car. I was, I was oh no, she's wandering about downtown <laughs> Nantucket. On gummy bears. Yeah, well, yeah. one little one. One? Yeah. One tiny one, I know. Yeah, I think, really I think spiking people is one of the most evil things yeah. you can I agree. Yeah. This, this, this wasn't, wasn't that. Spiking. This wasn't that. This she, was, she, she took it spiking. knowingly. This was just, you know, when someone she goes, just has a bad oh, reaction. it's only, it's only, it's only, 0.2 milligrams, it won't do anything, you know. Yeah. And then it, it, like for me, I'm Took really you out for a couple days. Well, I probably spent 10, 12 years walking around with Thorazine in my pocket, which was a like Valium, a good way to bring somebody down easily. Oh, it's oh, a little yeah. rough, but I mean, when you had audiences where, uh, you know, people were doing a lot of drugs and not being very careful about it, you always had to have the. Was, you know, and there, I do think at that time, um, you know, I mean, the music business now and then, you know, it, it there's there's legit aspects to it, and then there's like you know, it can be people operate like thugs a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, badly. Did, did you did you uh, experience people like you know pulling guns on? No, there was a good thing about that whole era was that there was. You know, and especially at Woodstock, if you realize Woodstock was between 400 and 600,000 people oh in God. a field for four days, and there isn't one single case of uh, violence reported from one person to another one. And I think that you actually had something to do with that, not just you, but I, I, the, the philosophy of Woodstock and the, the head of security and the whole was, you know, it was an Aquarian exhibition, a celebration of peace, love, and music. Um, people were there to enjoy themselves. The idea was to get people in the country, in the you know, out out in the woods, or not in the woods, but out in the into the country, and play a lot of music for them. Yeah, yeah. and also have art, and you know, and there was there was a there was a lot going on. There were several. There was a second stage. There was, you know, I know you had brought um, some Native American artists there that didn't actually get their art out because of the rain. <laughs> because yeah. of the, it was, you know. Raining, but but there was a lot going on, and it was a you know kind of communal experience for people. And I think you were setting a tone from the stage because you did quite well, a bit of the stage announcement. That's that's what we wanted to do, was to keep them, to keep the audience. And there is a, a PBS documentary that we've both seen. Yes. Called Woodstock that just came out. It said what American Experience. It's an, yeah, it's, it's it's PBS American Experience, which is mainly Barrett about the Goodman. audience. It's, so it's you've really got an oral history of the of, of the audience's experience and yeah. the people that went. They they tracked down people that went to Woodstock, really? wow. talked to them about their experience. What did they remember? What did it mean to them? But it also this this movie opens with John, you know, on stage warning people to get, you know, there there was a thunderstorm happening. Get down off the towers. It's not safe. Um, I mean, you really were there, like kind of getting people up in the morning. You know, and then putting people to bed at night with Joan Baez's help, you know, and uh, it, and you created, I feel like, an atmosphere that didn't turn into a disaster. Well, thank you. That's what we were trying to do. Yeah. Um, Amazing. Yeah, it was really and we're proud to partner. We're proud to partner with PBS to do PBS, Warner Brothers, Amazon. PBS, all of them. Yeah. Southern Comfort, don't forget Southern oh, Comfort. And Abercrombie and Fitch. <laughs> it yeah. is not for me. <laughs> yeah, indeed. It's funny, I actually... I, have, I haven't heard back from the Malibu Chamber of Commerce yet, yeah. but they have usually been... They're a little slow. Yeah. yeah. 
Oh my gosh, that's funny. Um, so, well, so, you know, Woodstock is worth, um, you know, um, dwelling on for, for, for one second. I mean, you, um, what, what are your, what are your, like, most vivid memories of, of being there and, like, did, did you sleep at night? Well, the funniest thing was the first night, Thursday night, I had taken my crew out to eat in a house that we were renting. And we had dinner, and we were coming back to the site. And it took us about two and a half hours to get do a drive that we would normally do in 10 minutes. And I walked up on stage, and Bill Hanley, who did the sound, had set up the sound system. And there was a live mic. And there was enough light. It was a fairly clear night that I could see the field was full of people. And I was standing next to this microphone, and I didn't realize it was live. And so I broke a vow I'd made to my mother ages before, <laughs> which was I would never swear on stage. Yeah. So the first two things said at Woodstock, first two words were, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> and about a, about a half a million people laughed back at me. Oh my and God. it was like, that's when we knew we were into it. It's a realization uh, that this was like yeah. people were already there, the point of starting the next morning. It's the point yeah. of no return. Yeah. And so that was it. We didn't have a point of return. And we knew that what we had to do was keep everybody happy and peaceful and And it was like, you know, it was like, it seemed to me from what I've seen and read about it and heard about it, um, that, you know, it was like kind of organized chaos because you, you had a lineup, you had a bill, you had, but there were so many people there, was traffic, getting people in, you know, whether it was by helicopter or... Jimi Hendrix had to, you know, flag down people and hitchhike in and took him a while to get there. Um, and so you kind of had to, you know, scrap the lineup. And at first, just like whoever was there. Yeah, well, and it yeah. turned out to be Richie yeah. Havens uh, was the first act at Woodstock. And he was supposed to play later. His One of his band members didn't wasn't even there. He went on without that person. Um, and... You kept, you know, you kept sending him back on stage because there was no one else. And I kept grabbing him. He'd get up and leave, and I'd say, "Here, go play, play another encore." And he finally ran out of things. And he was do. just like, "I played everything I know." <laughs> Happy so, birthday! Well, so he just—he well, came up with the freedom. Thing. He came up with the song "Freedom," which became a. He was hit just for singing him. "Freedom, Freedom," and he just—and it, it's, wow. it's mesmerizing. It, it's mesmerizing in the in the Woodstock documentary from 1970. And we actually have Richie Havens uh, speaking about it. He's he died several years ago, not, not numerous years ago. But he he was interviewed. You're going to say numerous times. Uh, uh -huh. <laughs> he, died, he only died once, but it was numerous years. It was ago. a while I died ago. twice. Um, I'm still it. But uh, he talks about making that song up, and we have a little clip. And Joe McDonald was there. Country Joe mm -hmm. uh, was there because he just wanted to hear the music. And I knew Joe pretty well. And said, you remember we were in Amsterdam a year or so ago, and you said you wanted to do uh, a solo. You were thinking about doing a solo performance. Now, please. <laughs> and well, he was going to perform with his band later, right. and he just yeah. happened to be there to so like, go out how and do... How did people leave? Like, how, how did they know when it was done? They didn't. I mean, the interesting thing was that we decided about that. The interesting thing was that we decided to keep going through Sunday night. Because I wanted to keep the crowd, I didn't want all those people on the road, in the dark. Uh, Let them leave Monday during the yeah, daylight. Yeah, go home on Monday. And 
So we kept the music going. Jimmy actually played, must have been about 7 o'clock in the morning on Monday morning. Oh, really? And he only played to about 30,000 people. I mean, because everybody else had just gone. They decided to go home. He played this legendary version of a star-spangled banner. He was the last act. He was the last act, yeah. And I mean, you asked me, I had finally, I'd gotten him on stage. I went back to my trailer and I lay down and I went out like a light and I heard the star-spangled banner and I woke up Mm. and I went to myself, it's over, it's done. And, and uh, then what happened? I had to walk the whole site. <coughs> Sorry, guys. I had to walk over the whole site because I was wondering, I was hoping I wouldn't find anybody who was seriously injured or dead. Or dead. And there weren't. Good. There were weird rumors, you know, at the time. Like people were telling Oh, sure. You, there were weird rumors you know, everywhere all yeah. the time. I mean, when we had the storm sequence, uh, which is in the film, where it was just me and Michael on stage, Mike Wadley on stage, with him on one knee shooting me. Telling, asking people to get off the towers, and the uh, roof is popping all over the place, and it's raining. It was actually considered a tornado. The winds went up to 50 miles an hour. Oh and I got this mic in my hand that's sh- shocking me. Yeah, yeah. And somebody says to me, Joan Baez has had a miscarriage, your wife has broken her ankle, and your dog is loose in the crowd. All of which turned out not to be true. (laughs) And I'm up on the stage with the wind blowing. It wasn't all at one time, but people were saying that and saying, can you get away from the towers? Can you get the reason we were saying get away from the towers is there were super trooper spotlights on these towers, which were about three, four stories high. And they weren't chained down. We'd forgotten to chain them down. One of those things weighs around three, four hundred pounds. If it came off and hit somebody, it'd kill them. Yeah, we'd kill them. Mm. And it didn't. And we got lucky. I mean, that's the. I think the things that you can say about Woodstock are, we got lucky. We had a hell of a lot more people than we ever thought we would. I mean, the Beatles in Shea Stadium, the year before, had only been fifty thousand people. That was in Shea Stadium. Monterey Pop, which was two years before, was only about thirty-five thousand people over three days. So we had many, many more people than we ever thought we did. Yeah, it really uh, started the this thing of the mega. Um, you know, festival. Well, everybody like, looked like at Coachella it. today. Right. Yeah. Well, I admire him. I'd, I'd like to meet that guy one of these days because I think they've done a brilliant job of handling it and handling how they do it. It's, it's so huge. Yeah. Coachella. But it's but but uh, thought having out. Been, having been on the inside of their security, yeah. it's it's uh, really unbelievable considering what we were talking about today earlier. You know, when you are um, at Coachella, you are tracked. By your bracelet, when you walk from venue to venue, you have to click a thing. They 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 yeah. can pinpoint exactly where you are. God forbid there is an emergency or somebody needs you and or somebody wanders off. Uh, These days with GPS, that. they know exactly where you are at all times. The only thing was for me, it was so big, and you know, in England, and I don't know if this is just my perception of it, but in England, at festivals, everyone that works there is there so they get a free ticket to see the music. Mm-hmm. So they're really passionate about the music and about everything that's going on. So, and you know, when you're covered in mud, it's not a fashion show or anything. You oh, know, I'm like, do you mean like a renaissance fair? Mm-hmm. Freshen yeah, your right. drink, governor. Want a leg of my own, dear? One of those, is that what you mean? Of course, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Me lots of ladies, <laughs> the jousting is happening here. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's just like that here. It's yes. Like, <laughs> that is how I live my life, Governor. Um, but like, and so everyone that works there like knows where everything is. So I'll be like, where's Ozzy Osbourne on? And they'll be like, over there, run. He's coming on now. And you're like, run. You make it just in time. You know, it's all about the music and mud and everything. And it's just, it's all about music. And when I was at Coachella, every single person I asked where something was, no one knew where anything well, bloody was and and I went to see so many of the wrong bands uh, <laughs> I was at the no wrong stage knew. it's also because here it's it's all about the marketing and yeah. their activations and their what they're not it's not I know, about I was the well they've studied it and he's the guy I've forgotten the guy's name but the guy who runs it has done a really good job of putting people behind. Oh, this cat. Oh, the cat's not going to Okay. Is it being sick? Yes, it is. Right. Oh, wow. baby, my... my okay. Well, that's Do you want to take a short break? Yeah, yeah, we can take a little break. Let's I, take a little break. Oh. Uh, ...break, where I'm sure you listen to, uh, you know, little... Little commercials from all of our sponsors. <laughs> all of them. Now that you're well dressed. You're well dressed. You listen to um, a, a lot of Rhino Records and Warner products, no uh-huh. doubt. We have Abercrombie and Fitch. Yes. And, yes. Amazon. All, and, and Amazon. Amazon. Exactly. We started with Amazon. Welcome back, Prime members. Prime. So now we're just uh, we're we're here. We're going to talk about uh, John's post Woodstock life. That was that was. So now let's embark on the next fifty years. Fifty <laughs> years and ten minutes. And, ten yeah. minutes. and go. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but that so that experience with Woodstock. I mean, I know you, you you must have taken a break, but then you and some of the people that you worked with at Woodstock then continued to work on concerts together. Well, I moved to London uh, after about six or seven months and founded the Rainbow Theatre, which right. became the big concert theatre in London. And who, yeah. who, uh, this cat is having a day, um, oh, but um, what, um, don't worry, the, who, who performed there, like Bowie, did you have Bowie there? Bowie was there, Pig Floyd, The Who opened for me. Never heard of any of them. No. <laughs> um, who? No. It was great, The Who were great because uh, they came on stage, Keith Moon was still alive. Keith Moon's my favorite. Yeah, he, he was a good guy. And they came on like a line of can-can dancers. <laughs> and that was the entrance. And that was the first show. Mooney later came back uh, when we had Leon Russell. And he was sitting in my office. And I had a desk that was an 8 by 4 sheet of plywood. And he was at one end knocking off his second bottle of scotch. And I was at the other end and we were talking to each other. And he suddenly went... You hear that? I said, What? He said, It's Eric. And we went down, we listened for a minute, and then we went downstairs onto the stage, and it was Eric Clapton. It was the first time he'd played in two years. <gasps> Eric Clapton. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I never, had, in my whole career, as I say, I've done over 400 concerts. I never did Eric, and I lo- always thought he was always my favorite musician. Mm. But he was tucked in the crotch of the, pi- the crook of the piano, yeah. wearing a watch cap pulled down over and a, and a navy pea jacket Is that right? you couldn't see him and he was playing with Leon Leon invited him to wow. come play and it was the first time after his uh, he'd been off the face of the earth for about two years because mm. he was doing heavy drugs right. and this was his first time out wow my daddy, really my daddy um, used to work for Polydor Records when he was like a kid like really young and um, and he 
did the cover of one of Eric Clapton's records. And it it would have fit. He was he was left-handed, wasn't he? Left-handed. No, he's right-handed. Oh, no, right Jimmy's left-handed. Okay, so this is it. So he was right-handed guitar. My dad, because it didn't fit this way, so my dad just flipped the image. Hundred thousand copies go yeah. go out there, and we made Eric. Well, he made Eric Clapton the left-handed guitarist, so they had to like put all of them um, yeah. off the off oh, the shelves. He, yeah, Clapton didn't want that. No, and then I think another. My dad had a, a bunch of funny mistakes. He did a record for a band that was called Continuous Performances, but he cropped it and it became Continuous Performance, but they liked it, so they kept it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So well, Henry, how, how long did you run the, the Rainbow? We ran it for about a year. Uh, oh, you ran the Rainbow? And then we did, did yeah. And then wow. we did uh, it, yeah. concerts wow. all over Europe. We did a tour of Santana. We did... Uh, like in Tina Turner. Uh, we did Chuck Berry one too many times. That's why I finally quit. I had enough of Chuck. No, Chuck Berry was not my favorite person by a long no, time. No, no. But uh, he, he went, we actually helped send him to jail because I had a tour for him in London. He called me five o'clock in the morning one morning and said, come down to Hilton and talk. I said, Chuck, it's five o'clock in the morning. He said, no, I got to talk to you, John. Come on down. So I went down. I said, what do you want to do? He said, I want to take the contract, which was for $72,000 for X number of concerts, and cut it into two $36,000 contracts. And I couldn't see anything wrong with that. Uh, so we did it. And then about five years after, afterwards, uh, somebody from the IRS showed up at my house in New York and said, we uh, want to talk to you about Mr. Charles E. Berry. And I said, who? Who? Oh my God. <laughs> and then I realized it was Chuck. And so he, they got him on tax evasion. He paid wow. tax evasion for 36 and didn't pay the other. Oh, uh, wow. But that was Chuck. Yeah, well, you know, you got to pay taxes. Right. I and mean, then we did. Uh, not in the age of Trump, but at least back then you did. It's safe to say that you worked with just about all Every single the great. Person. Is there anybody in, your, in the music career that you've had? Anybody that you wanted to work with that you didn't get to work with? I don't think so. Wow. What, what do you think of that? That's, that's pretty What's rare. No, it was, it was a rare time. It was early 70s when the music was really music. Mm -hmm. And I was in a place where, you know, with the theater in London, uh, where I knew everybody. I mean, one day a friend of mine, an old friend of mine from the Fillmore, Linda Eastman, called me up and said, can I bring my husband and come see your theater? And so I said, sure. And that's how I met Paul McCartney. And he asked me to do a tour. They, were, they hadn't toured at all. He hadn't toured the, since the Beatles. And he wanted me to do a college tour of England and Irish colleges, about which I knew nothing. Right. But I said, sure. Wow. And, and listen, uh, you'd made it, you'd really had this trial by fire. You had been through almost every, you know, possible uh, yeah. scenario. You, at this point, you ha must have had the confidence. Well, it was interesting because I had been planning, I'd been flying to France every Sunday night and spending Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday in Nice with Mick Jagger, planning the 1972 you Tour you of were America. Mondays and Tuesdays with Mick Jagger. I was Thursdays and Fridays. With oh, Mick Jagger. Oh, like, oh, That's why weekend. we didn't was cross paths. That's it. <laughs> I was in Cap Dantibe on Thursdays and Fridays. You were in Nice on Mondays and Tuesdays. Got it. That's not a bad. That's not a bad little schedule though. To go down to Nice, which is very beautiful, to hang out with Mick and plan the plan the. Uh, well, tour. it was it was fascinating. I really enjoyed him. He was good fun. Yeah. 
They are even even now. They are incredible. I I mean, I've just rarely seen anyone, and all all of them, everyone in the Stones, but especially Mick Jagger, who just puts on a show. Oh yeah. Just you know, he just he knows how to amp up a crowd and knows how to make everything that he's doing really interesting, and he's fascinating to watch on stage. The only person better that I ever saw. Was Prince? I, I, don't I never saw Prince. Never Prince to me, I've there doesn't get better than Prince, and you you Freddie actually Mercury, got me tickets to Prince. Um, yet I never saw him live. No, but of the, of the people that I saw live, Prince was my favorite. I'm just trying to remember the occasion that I saw Prince perform at his home, <laughs> at the party that I was invited to. Oh uh, gosh! See, I didn't have that. It was one of my first. It was when I first moved to LA. In fact, it was one of the. I had, still had a Thomas guide in my car. And I was working the event, but of course, like any smart lady, I took my um, badge and hid it so that I looked just like a regular guest. Yeah. And then I mingled. Oh my god! <laughs> That's the smart I've thing to that. do. I've done yeah. that. When I, I, I worked at an event like for the premiere of um, Hotel Caroline, no, Radio Caroline, that um, the first ever radio station. And Paul McCartney danced with me at that party. And then I left, um, I left, I was meant to be working, and I just left with one of the members of McFly, which is a band in England. <laughs> <laughs> a band in England. Actually, I left, I left with the, um, with the writer of the band, sorry. I don't want to, I don't want to. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly. Um, one of the songwriters. But this yes, is not an advertisement. <laughs> so then, um, uh, you know, the, the, the 70s continued and you continued doing, you know, Grateful Dead shows and other concerts. I think, if I remember correctly, you wrapped up your uh, music uh, concert pr- producing career with uh, a concert in England called Nebworth. The Nebworth Festival. Which, um, if I remember correctly, was one of the very early uh, concerts that was, um, you know, filmed and uh, streaming available on by satellite. Yeah, that was on that was wow. with MTV. Yeah, uh, and that's what I was there for was to arrange the television. And it was uh, I mean, who performed in Nebworth? Was it? Uh, it was uh, the... Oh, Clapton, uh, McCartney, uh, Robert Plant. Robert Plant, who I knew by then because Robert had come and visited me in Santa Fe, uh, and uh, I think probably is he he I would say is my favorite performer. Robert, as a, per- uh, as a person, uh, yeah. oh yes. I mean, th- through you, I m- I met him, and he's he was delightful, he's just very guy. charming, super amazing performer, electrifying. Uh, Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin, um, and uh, oh, yes. he's uh, he, and he was very sweet. Oh, he's a nice man. And he had sexy. A, he had a nice uh, son. He, yeah. I, we we caught him. I caught him at at a family time. Uh, you know, when he was back in Led Zeppelin before he had children. I think it was a whole nother game yes. going on with Led Zeppelin backstage. But you know, no. when we saw him, I mean, you, you went to numerous, you worked with him, but I went to a concert in Philadelphia while I was in college um, with you and hung out with him backstage, and his son was there. It was all very wholesome. Yeah, no, no, he, <laughs> he's got a son and a daughter uh, who came. He came to Santa Fe, I can't remember the year, but a friend of mine, well, a friend of mine who was my ex wife, was working for his management company and said, Rock God, that was their name for him, wants to come to Santa Fe. So I was driving a truck uh, right into the plaza to uh, unload some 
uh, jewelry cases into a friend of mine's store, and there, leaning on a on a uh, parking meter, is rock god. And boy, he he looked like a rock god. <laughs> great mane of of blonde hair, and a you know rock and roll jacket and shorts, and uh, I just went and introduced myself, and he said, hi, what you doing? I told him, and so he helped me carry the jewelry cases into the shop, and he stayed in Santa Fe for about two weeks, went riding, finally called his kids, <laughs> and they brought them down, and we had a great time. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So those were your worlds coming together, because you were already uh, producing arts and antiques shows. We were doing the uh, objects of art shows uh, in Santa Fe, because I had, as I said, done too many Chuck Berry concerts. Mm -hmm. Now... Because, you know, for in terms of my life, um, you got into producing art shows, you know, sometimes in New York, but often in Santa Fe. You've done them in San Francisco, other places as well. Um, I have to say that I preferred the rock concerts. Uh, I did actually work on your um, shows, um, but not, wasn't my thing. Well, I enjoy the art, the art dealers and the antique dealers. More than the old. The only difference between the old days and the rock and roll and the art now is I think the art people, the dealers who I deal with, are more civilized. Mm -hmm. I, so far, I haven't had to go bail and I haven't had to pay for a trashed hotel room, both of which I did in the old days. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's so, good. That's for the good. Most it'll part, happen. The art is quieter, I think. Yeah. Yes, the experience. Not always, but. Uh, most of the art doesn't... Uh... Did your hearing get shot, you know, just being in uh, yes. concerts all the time? No, uh, actually my hearing got shot because of shooting, I think. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I used to shoot at gun trials, at field trials for retrievers. And uh, I probably pulled off more rounds than a 12-gauge shotgun than most people do in a lifetime. And uh, that's what's made me partially deaf on the right side. Yeah. Not the music. Not music. Not the music. Hmm. Wow. Who knew? There you go. Do you wear a hearing aid? Sometimes. You do. Yeah. Do you use one of those Dolco batteries? I just had to buy them. No. Thank and you, the reason Dolco. I bring Dolco is because <laughs> Dolco batteries proudly sponsored today's podcast. And we'll take some new ones for free. And uh, Well, they're also available, you know where? On Amazon. Amazon. Oh. Amazon. This now is what I've been doing. Full circle. This is what I've been doing for the last two minutes. Amazon sent me... A, uh, I had to do a questionnaire, and now I've got 50% off. <laughs> they're listening, they're listening. Sometimes <laughs> these podcasts exceed Georgie's attention span. I know. I mean, uh, we, <laughs> she loses interest and sometimes leaves the room. Thank John, you for staying with I us never lose, I didn't lose any interest, but, but my, my coupon was running out. So oh, I, I, had to do it I don't blame you. Well, yes. I'm I'm it, and before Eric uh, wraps it up yes. uh, and, and, and thanks you, I would like to thank you because... Um, you know how much I love you and Luzanne, who is unfortunately for me not here today. But I, I'm, so, I am so thrilled that we got to sit down and chat. Uh, well, I today. think it's a pleasure. You've been a friend since the first time you told me you really liked my house. <laughs> <laughs> because I, what happened is, by the way, just very quickly, anecdotally, um, Luz, I was here and John and Luzanne were, were serving lunch, and Luzanne said. Where's that fork? And I, without even thinking of it, went right into the drawer. <laughs> and I was like, you want this fork? And she said, oh, you're the guy who's always setting up the lunches when I'm not here. Yeah, yeah. So it was sad. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, I you've been like, a pleasure. I felt like a listener to, today because I, I learned 
So I know I didn't talk very much, but I was just so enthralled by all the stories. I was learning so much about your amazing life. So well, and I feel it, like it one is, of you people out there in the wide world listening. It is one. It's your first time meeting John, yes. um, having already been in two of his homes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but so that's you know I, that's understandable. And John, thank you so much for doing this. I thank mean, you I, for having I, us. I, um, you know, I, I also, you know, I love you very much. I, I appreciate. Um, uh, you know everything, and um, and especially you taking the time to do this. I really it's a pleasure. It. It's a pleasure. And hopefully people have enjoyed. I love it. you and Doug, and and, and Georgie and Georgie. And and all, and I know you're sending love to all of our friends all the way in Indonesia. You're right. Yes. We, we did actually a, a show in. I do a show in San Francisco every February, which is called the uh, Tribal and Textile Art Show. And we do an honored, favored country type thing. We did it with the Indonesians about two years ago. Oh, and yeah. that's why they listen to hear that, friends. <laughs> yeah, and they're really good friends. They, uh, the ex-head uh, of the, uh, the Consul General, Ari Hadwan, uh, became a good friend. Well, we should have him on. And the woman who runs sure. the office. Now, Rena's the one to have on. Rena's the lady who runs the consulate in San Francisco. Well, and she are, is amazing. She's a real sweetheart. We are planning a trip up there. Get, up, get on to there. Elisa Donovan and others who live up there. They also um, live in probably one of the best mansions they have as the, oh. the, the oh. Uh, concert. Done. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> We're going. We We're can going. record there. Thank we'll you, John. There. And thank, thank you, friends. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye. Bye. Love you. Bye, baby.